Real good. All right. Well, it seems like a lot of us are super tired this morning, and uh, I don't know, that's me, so I don't know if it's the weather or what it is. 2 Samuel 6, we're going to start there. Uh, we're going to kind of look at the passage we just read through, or that Jazzy just read through, and we're going to look at kind of our setting today. Fast forward from, you know, whatever it was, 13, 14 months ago when everything changed, right? Now, Fast forward to today, and it's not like everything is back to normal, although it feels like we're moving in that direction. Uh, I was on, the, uh, on a telebriefing thing uh, with the county of L.A., and they're talking about two of the three metrics that we need to move into the yellow tier or whatever. We've got two out of three of them, so we're headed that direction. Positivity rate and the testing and all that stuff has gotten really, uh, gotten really good. Things have progressed really well here. Oddly enough, California has the second best situation, whatever they call that, uh, for COVID. Like there's Hawaii and then we're the second best. And so for all this time where California has been a nightmare, finally we're getting somewhere, right? Uh, and then this week, come to find out on Thursday, we had to have a couple of people quarantine that were supposed to be here. So we're not out of the woods yet, right? But as we get to this place, we begin to ask ourselves, new questions. We went to, okay, as we move back into a space that feels a little more like where we're supposed to be, we can ask questions. So I'll put this on the board for you, on the screen for you. A new normal. As we settle into new COVID norms, we ask what this means for different areas of life. One area we must re-examine is our corporate worship practices. Now, we've talked a lot about this over the last year or so, that because of what we tend to think church means, or how we define church, is church a building? Is it a worship service, a Sunday gathering? What is it? The way we define church tends to have implications. We saw that as the building and the Sunday service changed, right? So what does it mean to be the church? And as we move back towards whatever the new normal is going to be, as we re-engage with the rest of our life, as schools are changing and churches are changing and restaurants and all the different businesses, the way you work is changing, as we're moving back to whatever it's going to be that is going to be the new normal, we begin to, we, we begin to re-examine our practices. And one area that really needs that is our understanding of corporate worship. So 2 Samuel 6, starting at verse 1, says this, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So here's where we are, right? David has become king. This is kind of his first act that we get to read about. To be fair, he does have some battles he goes through first. But as he becomes king over all Israel, right, that transition last week from just king over Judah, one tribe of the 12, to king over all Israel, as he begins to take that place, we kind of see what his priorities are. And I think of each election season, like yesterday I was hearing on the news or the day before, something like that, you know, what are the first hundred days, you know, that Biden's been in office? Or you hear on campaign trails, you know, in my, on my first day as president or in my first month or whatever, here's what I'm going to achieve. Well, it, it's kind of that moment for King David. It's this time where he's just become king and we're seeing what he values. Now, Saul had lost the ark at one point to the Philistines and then they had problems with it and they sent it back. But Saul only really ever used the ark of God. And if you're unfamiliar with what that is, 
We talked a lot about that in Exodus, but it's this thing that God created, God tell, told them to build, and inside of it has some special meaningful things to Israel, and his presence resided in the tabernacle, and so inside the tent, the tent of worship that they had, in the Holy of Holies was this ark, this this made this wooden thing covered in gold with the angels on top of it, and that's where God's presence would reside among them. And so as this kind of gets captured and returned, and, and then Saul as a king only kind of used it as like a good luck charm. He'd take it you know, into battle, or he'd call for it to ask questions, but he didn't really use it as, as a place of worship. He didn't really use it appropriately. And so it kind of gets lost in the culture of Israel under Saul's reign. It kind of gets displaced. And so David now, as king, has this value. I'm going to get this returned to Jerusalem. I'm going to bring it into Jerusalem, which he's recently conquered. And we're going to set up worship as primary among the people. We're going to value worship again. And so you can see how we might tie these two things together. David's new king, setting up shop in, in Jerusalem. He's trying to reestablish worship. Today, fast forward to today, as we kind of return to some sense of normalcy, right? No guarantees that this is the last run with the, with the virus or anything else. But just as we think we're moving this direction, how do we re-engage worship? What, how do we re-understand or how do we learn from our mistakes? How do we go back to what God has called us to do around worship and understand it better, right? If anything else, coronavirus showed us some flaws in the church. It showed us how that Christians and church today have some flaws in their understanding around what church means. If it's a building and a Sunday gathering, then when you remove that, the church falls apart. If it's something else, if church is something different than that, if church means something wholly other, then it should be able to sustain online or whatever it might be. And so how we understand church matters. Verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So David sets the ark on a cart, like an ox cart, right? And his plan is to bring the ark from where it was to Jerusalem. Verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And so they're doing what we just did, right? They're, kind of, they're worshiping with music, right? They're using music and they're kind of marching through this. The ark is with them and they're singing and playing music and they're doing this. It's that moment. And if you just kind of took a snapshot of that, you would think that God's people are right where God would have them, right? You would see this worship, you would see this moment, and you would think, oh, they're really kind of keyed in on what God wants for them. They're really doing what God has created them to do or called them to do. But are they? Verse 6, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the, uh, to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his error. And he died there before the ark of God. So this may seem really extreme. You go from this moment of worship to the death of this guy who's just trying to stabilize the ark of God. But there's two problems here. The big one where God has said no one can touch this. So there's that, right? 
But then how you move the ark is super important. See, the priesthood was created uh, or was called to carry the ark in a specific way. God had said, listen, when you move it, because remember, this was created during the Exodus. So they're out in the wilderness. They have this tabernacle, this tent that they raise up. And they have a specific way they go through this. And then when God would move, either the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire would move from over them and lead them. They would follow and they'd tear everything down. And they'd do a specific thing as they would walk with it. The priest would carry the ark of God. And then when they set up camp again, right there in the middle of everything, there where they would build the tabernacle. And they'd go through this process. They'd sacrifice and worship. And the priest would bring it in. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is there's an ox cart that is carrying the ark of God. That's not what they've been told to do. And because of this, when it hits a bump, somebody reaches out to grab it and dies. So you take a snapshot before with all this worship going on, and you're like, these people are doing amazing. They're right where God would have them. They're doing all the things that God has called them to do. But in reality, what they're doing is something entirely different. And when tragedy strikes, we see how it's different. So let me put this on the screen for you. Church. Church isn't a building or a worship service. It's a community of people who live an interdependent life together as a family who need one another. Right? We live as a family who needs one another. That's our job. We are an interdependent community of people. We're not a building. We're not a service. We gather for worship. Yes. That doesn't define us. That's something we do together. We find corporate worship as something we can't do alone. And whether that means we're live streaming or we're sitting here right now, whatever that looks like, that it's something that we can't do alone, that we need one another for, that we're not a building, we could do this anywhere, and we're not just a Sunday service, we can do all kinds of things, this is something we, the church, do. We're an interdependent community of people who need one another. So Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, says this, let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it's really hard to stir up one another if you don't have one another, right? If you think that church is a building or a gathering that you show up to and you take from and maybe give to, whatever it might be, but it's not an interdependent community of people then it's really hard to stir one another up to love and good deeds. It's really hard to encourage one another if you're flying solo, right? So this, consider how we do this and not neglect meeting together. Now, here's our, here's our challenge today. Here was the challenge in putting this together Thursday morning. I'm waiting on this Thursday afternoon telebriefing thing with L.A. County. The notes need to be in, but i got to be on this call. I'm not sure exactly where we are. And then we get to this place, right, where how far does this go today, right? Are we like, okay, hey, listen, we're at this place where if you're, you know, able, you should be here, or are we not at that place where, hey, you're still choosing whether you're online or you're in person? Where are we? And it's vague and unclear, to be honest. There's no clear answer. There's no, like, hey, if you're local, you should or should not be. We can't do that yet. We're not in that space, right? We're heading to a place like that. But we're not in a place where we should say, hey, you should be back, right? We're not there yet. We're not past this. We're not even in the yellow. After the yellow is whatever's normal, right? Whatever out here. Not everybody's vaccinated. Not everybody's going to be vaccinated. So what do we do? So this part was challenging. Now, what's the call today, right? So here's what we should hear. We should hear the words, let's not neglect meeting together. 
right? And we should hear the purpose that we exist to stir one another up, that we are to provoke one another in a good way, right? You stir one another up to love and good deeds, that we are to be a community of people. We need one another. We don't just need the people in our own home. We need the people around us. We don't just need the people in our community group, but we need the people in our community that we need to be together. First Corinthians says it this way, that God has so composed the body that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That we should so be interdependent, that we should be connected so much that we feel the pains of one another and that we rejoice in the celebrations of one, one another. When someone suffers, we all suffer. When someone is joyful, we're all joyful, that we are interconnected. Verse 8, so back to our story. Verse 8, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So here's David's first response. He's angry, right? He looks at what he's doing. He's like, man, we're worshiping. We're bringing the ark back. We're all this stuff. And here one little mistake. And God, lets it, and God takes this guy's life. So his first response is anger. And I think that's something we can resonate with. When things don't go our way, when we, when we find ourselves in a place where we think we're on track, and then we figure out we're not, anger sometimes is our first response. Verse 9, and David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Here's David's second response. It's fear, right? And I know that throughout this, if you go back 14 months or 13, well, I don't know, whatever, I've lost track. feels like dog years right now, right? Forever. feels like forever. But throughout this season, there's been fear, there's been anger, there's been fear, there's been anger. We've been all over the map, right? And neither one of those are faith-filled responses necessarily, but they're human. For sure, we've experienced a bit of both, right? So what do we do? David doesn't know what to do with the ark. Well, I thought I was doing the right thing, but then that fell apart. And then I was angry. That's probably not a good place to be with God. And now I'm just afraid and kind of paralyzed with where we are, right? Verse 10. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, so he's not willing to bring it into Jerusalem. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So David, not knowing what to do, says, we're going to park it right here. We're going to put it in this guy's house, and while it's at this guy's house for three months, God blesses the man that owns the home, right? We see that God's presence is with it, and we see that it's a good thing. We know that it's a benefit to have that, but David is kind of trapped in this place of, how do I get it from here to there? What do I do, right? So here's a note for you. Sometimes we just settle for what is easy. When things got hard, David settled for what was easy. Like many in the church, fear or struggle prevented us from working through hard times this last year. David does what's easy. Okay, we're here, let's just park it at this dude's house. Right? Let's just go with what I think I can achieve because bring it all the way to Jerusalem now sounds out of my capacity. It sounds like I don't know that I can do that. I'm not sure where I am with God. I'm angry, I'm afraid, I'm not sure where I'm at, so we're just gonna park this thing. They sit on this for three months and they realize, okay, well, there's still blessing in this. We still see God moving and pouring out on people. And David must be thinking, he's blessing them, but like, that's what I wanted, 
But we wanted this in Jerusalem. We want God's blessing, right? How many of us went through that this last season and just, it's logical, we all got burned out on Zoom for sure, right? I look back, I was trying to figure out when we started, I've been using Zoom for almost 10 years. I don't mean just feels like 10 years, which that's true too. But back when we started doing uh, some school stuff that was distance, like we were meeting with other people and some coaching things that were long distance, it was either Skype or Zoom, and Zoom was brand new and almost giving it away, and we tried it and it had a lot more features. I just realized we've been doing this for a long time, so you're uniquely positioned to use Zoom when COVID hit, right? But still, it got old really fast. And as you're kind of stuck using it, and it's not what you're, and you're missing that component, you're missing that personal touch, whatever it might be. It got old fast. And that's got to be where David was in that moment. He's got to be like, okay, I see blessing. I, still, I see God still blessing people. I still see God still being God and doing what God does. But the way I'm doing things isn't working. How, how do I change to what God is doing? Verse 12. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So here's what he does. He does what's easy. Let's just leave it here. But what's easy is not always what's best. Right? And so he realizes, okay, I still want God's best, and I'm still not getting God's best, and we left the ark over there. I know God wants the ark among the people, in the middle of the people, where all the people gather and worship, so he still wants it in Jerusalem. Now, how do I do what God wants the way God wants to do it? Right? How was I doing it wrong before? How do I do it right now? If this didn't work, we figured out we thought we were doing right, but we weren't then how do I do it the right way? And the next time we see David doing this, now the priesthood is carrying the ark like they were called to. And every so often, it's actually a very short distance in this case, but now every few steps they stop and they sacrifice and they wait. And here comes this long, arduous process of, of a little bit of movement and then worship and sacrifice. And then a little bit more, and then worship and sacrifice. And nothing comes quickly or comes easy as he works his way back to what God would have him to do. How do we take this moment where things are starting to get back to where we hope they're going, and how do we figure out what were we doing wrong? Where are we, or where were we off track? How do we change that? And how do we commit to what will most likely be a slow and maybe even painful process of returning to something that God would have, but re not returning to what we had, but returning to something that's better, that is more in line with what God had always wanted us to be? How do we get there? Verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the horn. This is a passage that gets talked about a lot. Uh, whether you're familiar with it or not, David danced before the Lord with all his might. He was wearing a linen ephod. Some people have said that he's basically dancing in his underwear. That's not true. Uh, he, may, 
He may want to, I don't know. He's actually wearing priestly garments. He's wearing very humble, very cheap. Uh, um, here's what I mean by that. It's like t-shirt and shorts versus like trying to put on a, a, a collared shirt, right? It, he's wearing the humbler version of what the priesthood would wear. If you back up uh, in Sam, 1 Samuel, when Samuel the prophet is young and growing up, he wears a linen ephod. It's not that he's running around growing up in his underwear. He's just wearing the humble version of what priests wore. The ephod wasn't even under, it was something that was on the chest piece, right? It had to do, we've, we've, seen, the, we've seen the priesthood come out when Saul would call them, and they would have to dig out the urim and the thummim. and they're trying to figure out, like, okay, what does God want in this moment? And there's a black rock and a white rock. And trying, like, it's kind of like a divine coin toss, right? That's all tied into the ephod. And the, the formal ephods would have all the, the fancy stones on them that represented the 12 tribes. And I, I say this, it's not super important to the story, except there's going to be a pushback around David's worship. Here's what we see. David is just caught up in worship. Like he is a bit lost in his own worship, in a good way. He is dancing and worshiping and singing before God in a way where he's just in the moment, right? What he's wearing is kind of this humble version, not kingly, not even formal priestly, but he's just in this humble moment where he's humble before God. He doesn't really care what anybody else thinks, and he's worshiping. How many of us actually find ourselves where we can be that lost in worship? doesn't mean you have to dance or you have to do this or you have to do that, but just really where worship is what is kind of consuming your mind or your you in church, out of church, whatever it might be. And especially like how hard is that to do at home online, right? I found ourselves when we were live streaming church, it's even hard to sing at home sometimes, right? You just kind of feel a little alone. You miss that corporate component. It's hard to get lost in worship. Not impossible, hard right? It's different here in the room, and maybe some of you still struggle with that here, right? Then I've been in some settings where the worship is big concert settings or big gatherings, right, where everybody's just kind of up in worship, and it, it's entirely a, a, a different environment. That's where David is, even as they march through the streets with the Ark of the Covenant. He's consumed with worship in that moment, Verse 16, it says, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, why? Why? Is it because of what he's wearing, which it might be, or is it because now, all of a sudden, Michael is now always referred to as the daughter of Saul? Is she somehow caught up more in the fact of whose daughter she is rather than whose wife she is? And they have, a, they have a, a challenged backstory, right? She was promised to David and then, re, and then pulled back. And then, then David paid for her by slaughtering a bunch of Philistines. That's a whole other story, right? And wins her. And then as David goes on the run, Saul gives her to another man as a wife. I mean, they, they have a, a painful story. So why we get to this moment, we don't know. But what we find is that Michael is bitter at this point. Verse 17, and they brought the ark of the Lord and set it up in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all the people 
the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. So the Ark of the Covenant now finally makes its way into Jerusalem. And yeah, Michael sees David out worshiping, dancing, doing his thing, not dressed as a king, not all formal, but very humble before God. And as they enter in, they give each person of Israel, they give thousands and thousands of people this gift to celebrate, this cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And each person then departed and went to their own house, blessed by this. So here's a note on corporate worship. As David restores corporate worship to the people, what we see is joyful and engaged worship and mutual care for one another. That there's a mutual care and giving to the people. And there's worship and there's joy and there's celebration and there's sacrifice. We see all this. And we have to ask ourselves, as we begin to gather again, as we begin to restore that corporate worship, when I say gather again, I... I have all along said when we were online only, we were still gathered. Other people would argue with that. No, it has to be physical gathering. When Hebrews 10 says, let us not forget, gather together, that it meant physical. Well, it had to mean physical. Nobody had internet back then. So, of course, they were thinking gathered, right? But when God wrote it, he looked down the lens of history and knew that we could gather digitally. And and I, I think he allows for that, right? I think that gathering right now doesn't have to be physical, There is definitely something better about being together, but we still gathered. Our community groups gathered. Our our staff, we gathered and did things online. But there is a component that we lose to that. There's a component of that that's just still not the same. And so as they begin to do this, they gather, they worship, they celebrate. There's this mutual self-giving. There's this sharing of yourself with others. Verse 20. And David returned to bless his household, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Clearly, that's the place where everybody says, oh, he must be worshiping God in his underwear. But it says he's in a linen ephod, which is not that. But he is in a linen ephod, which was the humblest version of that. And he's not dressed as a king. He's not even dressed as a priest or something special. He's actually out there quite humbly. Verse 21, and David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father, which is why there's probably a component of Saul versus David in this, who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes or humbled in your eyes. By the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I should be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Pretty strict, or pretty stern verse on the other side of bitterness, right? But she pushes back, and David says, listen, man, I'm going to worship. I'm going to worship God, and and, and if you can understand that, great. uh, But others are going to get it. Like, others are going to understand I'm worshiping God, and that, that worship must become primary again for us. And there's this obvious bitterness between David and Michael. And for whatever reason, our author ties that together with her lack of having children. And just these deep issues in between, between her and God and, and her and David. Second Samuel 7, verse 1 says, Now when the king lived in the house of the Lord, 
The Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So we fast forward, and, and there's just rest, right? We see worship restored, and what we see next is rest, right? The Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. He's not still struggling with this. Worship is restored, and, there, and, the, and the breakout or the outcome of this or what God honors him with is rest. Verse 2. Then the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do the, all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David goes to the prophet Nathan. He says, Listen, it's odd that I live in a palace and God's still in a tent. Like, that's just weird. I want to build a temple for God. I want to build a house, a permanent space, not this little tent. Like, I want to do something big for God. And Nathan's like, you should totally do that. Because it sounds right. Sounds good. Sounds like David's heart is in the right place. Nathan the prophet's like, man, that sounds like the right thing. Unfortunately, it's not what God wants, but it does sound right. But it should give us pause that sometimes the things that sound right aren't always what God would have for us. Verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I moved with the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word of any of the judges of Israel when I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God says, I've been in a tent. I told him to make the tent. I'm good, right? Did I ever ask for that? And again, here's what you've got. Here's what God wants. And what David wants isn't wrong. It's not what God wants, but his heart's in the right place, right? As we ask ourselves the question, how do we re-engage in corporate worship? What do we do? There are things that may sound right. There may, th there may be things that kind of in our heart it's the right thing to do, right? And, it, and our heart is desiring to honor God. But when we wait long enough to ask God, okay, God, what do you want from us, right? What would you have us to do? Because both the king who loves God and the prophet who often speaks for God agree, oh, sounds like a really good idea. Let's build a house for God. But that's not where God is at. He says, no, I'm good. Goes on, verse eight. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, by the way, my servant David... Again, David's heart's in the right place, and God recognizes that. He blesses David, right? Therefore, you, thus you'll still say, verse 8, to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you whenever you went, and I have cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. God looks at David and says, I love where your heart's at, but you don't make me a house. I make you a house. Right? I take care of you. You don't have to worry about me. Here's what I'm going to do through you. You just stay the course. I'm going to... How, I'm going to cause the people to be at rest. I'm going to cause them to flourish where I've planted them. You don't have to worry about me. I'm God. I take care of you. You don't have to take care of me. 
Verse 12, when the days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. There's a bit of a play on words here. Yes, he's talking about Solomon. Yes, he's talking about Jesus, right? I will build for you an eternal kingdom. I will build an everlasting kingdom, right? I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon will build the temple. Solomon will also establish this kingdom that Jesus will reign over. There's a beautiful kind of sharing of the gospel in this. Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. So this promise to David is a promise also to Solomon, who as of yet isn't even born, right? That he will be established because he's David's son, but also that there will be an eternal implication of this. There will be a house forever, right? Son of David is a title that is given to Jesus, knowing he is the fulfillment of this as Messiah. But one step at a time. David, you're not going to build a temple. I will let your son do that, kind of honor him with that, honor you with that. But I will also be establishing something that you won't take away. Right, that gospel message of Christ coming to cover our sin, to establish a kingdom of which we are a part, that if you're in Christ, you're a part of the kingdom, not just this nation or this city or this town, but of, of the kingdom of God. Jesus' opening words in ministry are, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right, as he begins, listen, I'm doing something new. I'm creating something you will be a part of. And you will have to figure out how we live in the kingdom and still in this world simultaneously. But as you follow me, that will become much clearer. It's like David is living in a kingdom called Israel. And he's been at war with kingdoms around him. He's had that struggle. But as David figures out his place with God and, and God's place with his people and becomes obedient to that, what he gets is peace, even though he's still here. His kingdom is established through God, God establishes his kingdom. And the outcome is worship and peace and joy and fruitfulness, even though they're still here. Verse 16, it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God is looking through this and pointing out that this will, this, this will come to its fulfillment in the Messiah. Now, did David get all that in that moment? Did he understand, okay, good, Solomon gets to build a house, but Jesus is the eternal fulfillment of this? Probably not, right? As he gets the implications to this throughout his life and, and, and Judaism and Christianity, get to look backwards through the lens of Jesus already coming and understand how God was speaking all the way along, easier to look back. Right? That hindsight is twenty twenty kind of thing. Forever, because David establishes worship. Forever, I promise to be with you. Forever, I promise to establish you. All this comes through David's moment of thinking he was worshiping God rightly, correctly, even with a right heart, but wrongly. As he backs up, partly out of fear, partly out of anger, partly out of the death of Uzzah, he has to back up and figure, okay, what is it God wants to do right here, right now? And how do I get in line with what God wants to do? How do I find myself and what God is doing? How do, I, how do I change what I thought was right, what I thought honored God? How do I how do I lay all that down and be willing to hear only what God would say? 
And as David begins to do that, what we see is God meet him in that. God bless him in that. And then God blesses others through him. Peace reigns. How we are longing for peace in our nation. Peace with one another. Peace in our own lives. Peace globally. Peace is the outcome of David figuring out, okay, how do we restore worship to the people of God? I want to close with this. As, as the, the COVID risks are getting lower and the opportunities are getting greater, there's more to do. We begin to, as we said in the beginning, we begin to ask new questions about things. Well, what does that mean for our corporate worship? What does that mean for gathering? What does that mean? Colossians 3 says this, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That verse there has so many things in it that require one another, right? That we would even come and sing psalms and hymns together, that we would join together in that, but that we would teach one another, admonish one another, right? As we would give wisdom to one another, what we hear is we need one another. What we need to do as we're coming out of this long stretch of coronavirus restrictions is not fall into the trap of what we had before, where we define church as a building and a Sunday gathering. Because when that was taken from us, our church, our church, local churches, one in five churches closed. That's how bad this is. That we so misunderstood church and its definition and its purpose and its identity and what we contribute to it and how we receive from one another. It was so off base that one in five churches closed. That's all those oozas that reached out trying to help and just missed that we would learn that we are members of a body, that we belong to one another. We are a family of families. We are a spiritual family together in Christ where God is our Father. And just like today where I show up, there's no body parts I left at home. And there's nothing I really think, well, I don't really need that body part. I want to keep them all, Right? We need to feel that way about one another. We need to serve one another that way. Where we end up belonging to each other. Loving, encouraging, establishing, teaching, admonishing, worshiping with one another. And that is when we establish church. That's when we gather rightly and understand who we are with one another. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You came and you built a body. You had a physical body. And you called us to a spiritual body. Your word throughout time has, has given us this image of a body that we might understand our relationship to one another. That we might understand that like hearts and lungs and feet and hands and eyes and ears and everything works together just as it takes all of that to walk through the door or stand up and worship, that we need one another that much, that no one here is indispensable, no one is extra, no one is without value, everyone is necessary. 
And that when we gather, we gather with that in our minds. And when we scatter out into our own homes and communities, that we do so knowing we still have a body that we're a part of. And that you have called us to that one body. Just as Paul encouraged the church, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let that be true of us, Lord, as we think through re-engaging the rest of our life. Let us think through how we're going to be a church differently. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.